MH Productions presents Women Like Judy. We're your hosts, Connor and Dev. When we finished the previous episode, we left you with a startling secondhand confession regarding the murder of Christine Verger. Before we continue to share what John, a research consultant of the show, learned from Frank that day, we want to take a moment to provide first-hand accounts of what it was like growing up in the 70s and 80s in these small towns. It was probably around 73. Uh, we were in the um, Groton Air Walkathon, my, uh, my friend and I, and my next-door neighbor was in the Walkathon on the curb front, and they weren't near us anywhere, but my next-door neighbor said that they got bored and they were tired, decided they didn't want to be in the walkathon anymore. So the two girls decided to come somewhere in the air area for a ride home. And that somebody pulled over and the, the guy, I don't know if they said it was one or two guys, got out of the, you know, uh, pulled over and offered them a ride. And uh, so they got in the car and uh, my neighbor, she actually told me that... Um, they wouldn't let her out of the car, and they were holding the two of them captive. She managed to escape and got out of the car, and I never heard what had happened to her friend, whether she was, uh, you know, she eventually did get out, but whether they did anything to her before they got her out of the car, but there definitely was something that happened with her that they didn't want to talk about. So my brother and I would always ride our bikes um to North Middlesex, you know, you go down Proctor Road and then you can go down, well, you used to be able to go down, there's a steep hill and then you can ride around. So I remember it was a Saturday because school there was no school. And so I must've been seven or eight, which means my brother was like eight or nine. So seven, eight, nine, eight, nine, and he must've been eight, nine or 10, like right around there. And uh, I just like, you know, now looking back, you realize how big this was, but so we're riding around and there was a car sort of following us um, wherever we went. And there was no one else in the parking lot, but us on our two bikes in this car. And so back then with, with North, I know they've redone it, but the car couldn't keep circling North Middlesex. We could, cause we could jump on a curb, get on a sidewalk, go around the side. So the car would leave the whole parking lot, come down another road. Like literally we're like, what is this guy doing? Like, I remember it distinctly. And but not being alarmed because back then there was nothing to be afraid of. Like we're over there riding our bikes, you know, our parents' house is right here. But we just were like, what's is he lost? What is he doing? And then at some point we drove our bikes to the front main entrance. So, you know, it's like this big open area, big sidewalk, and then the parking lot. So we're off our bikes, just sort of resting or standing there talking right in front of the main doors. And he gets out of his car, this guy, and he walks up to us. And he takes out a badge and he shows it to us. And he said, I'm the high school police. He said, you need to come with me. And we're look, and I was like, oh my God, we're in so much trouble. Like, I didn't know we couldn't ride. Like, this is me, right? I'm like, oh my God, I thought we could ride near the school. I guess he's like, this is private property. I'm the high school police. You're in big trouble. He's like, you need to come with me right now. So thank God my brother was a little older than me. This is what sort of haunts me. 
Um, and he was big into my dad being a cop. I wasn't, I was a girl, so I really didn't know much, but my dad always had his gun out and his badge out, you know, on the top of the fridge or, you know, so my brother was obsessed with that stuff. And my brother said, that's not a real badge. And I looked at my brother, his name is Mark. And I go, Mark, I'm like, don't talk to him like that. And he's like, that's not a real badge. And the guy's like, yes, it is. He said, you, and he kept coming close to us. He's like, you need to come with us with me. And I'm like, okay. And I start to walk towards him with my bike. And my brother's like, Lisa, get on your bike. We got to get out of here. Like literally my brother saved my life. If I was by myself, I absolutely positively would have gone. That I believed that man 100%. I believed his badge. I was like, ooh, we probably shouldn't be on private property. Like he said, we can't. And my brother, and thank God, like I knew my, my brother was my older brother. So he's like, he literally was like, get on your bike and we got to get out of here. There were several reported, most likely many more unreported, attempted and successful kidnappings. These were not one-off instances. Children, especially young girls, reported instances where men would drive by, slowing down their boat-style cars, soliciting a response from girls that were half their ages. This was a time where CCTV footage did not exist. If a teenager felt unsafe, they couldn't raise their smartphones and threaten to live stream. And as easy as it is to harp on the effects of technology these days, Gosh, this was one instance that would have helped prevent the harassment and abductions of these children who were just trying to walk home from school. Why are we choosing to insert these testimonies in this episode? Well, we have deeply wondered, as you also may be doing, listener, if Calvin was one of the young men who used to drive around accosting innocent young females. Did he lean out of his car, harassing Debbie while she rode her bike? And then when she had a sharp retort back to him, did he decide to lunge after her? You will hear us continue to reiterate many times, he was a large guy. He had strength and athleticism on his side. So did he use those advantages to corner his victims? The 1970s are often associated with hard drugs, especially hallucinogenic ones. The North Middlesex High School was no exception to this connection. Students would even show up to school after taking a variety of drugs. Yeah, it, it was it was very hush-hush. Nobody talked about it. I mean, because there was a lot of drugs that were, uh, with LSD and stuff like that uh, in the school district itself. They didn't talk about that either. So, you know, I mean, it was crazy that that stuff was going on. But, uh, I mean, uh, there were kids that would be high on LSD and uh, they would send them to the nurse because the kid was trying to fly out the window thinking they were a bird and they said they had to go home because they had the flu, you know, hiding the fact that there was a drug problem. And uh, the football team had a problem with uh, the drugs being so uh, prevalent that they actually uh, ended up penalizing the, uh, the football team for the drugs. We share this not because we think North Middlesex was any wilder than any other small towns in the area during the same time period, but more so to stress that while never an excuse in itself, were these abused substances accelerants to the ticking time bombs like Calvin? We finished our previous episode on a cliffhanger. Frank shared with John that he 
Calvin had murdered Christine Forget. Frank explained that she was in the same circle as Calvin, one known for partying and recreational drug use. While everyone certainly liked Christine, Frank did say that nobody truly knew her all that well. Charlie and John spoke with Frank for a bit longer before eventually heading off to other job sites that Charlie was scheduled to visit. That day, though, was truly just beginning for John, our series research consultant. See, he found himself eating lunch in his truck when he received a call from an unknown number. It was Frank. And Frank needed to talk to John badly enough that he had tracked down John's contact information from Charlie. While John stopped eating his lunch, Frank immediately began to vent over the phone. His voice could not disguise his upset. He apologized for his strange behavior earlier that day, saying that he had been taken off guard hearing her name. He said he knew one day he would need to talk about this. And without pausing, he explained to John that he not only knew Christine's killer, he knew who murdered Debbie Quimby as well. Frank said that the same person killed both girls, Calvin. Years before Christine was found beaten to death, Debbie Quimby vanished in the early summer of 1977. Her face was plastered all over the newspapers, pleading for her safe return. In the same way Judy's murder shocked the small town community, Debbie's disappearance sent similar waves of heartbreak and confusion. Frank explained he had been at a party one summer night, drinking and using a variety of drugs. Those in attendance at the party were all highly under the influence in the kitchen of a friend's house. Perhaps Christine could have even been there that night as well. Frank remembers Calvin entering into these trance-like states where he was so high, and that night was really no exception. The disappearance of Debbie Quimby came up in conversation after the partygoers heard a local TV station sharing the known details of her case as the TV was on in the background. When her name entered the conversation, Calvin said, quote, I don't remember what I did to that girl, but I know I enjoyed it, end quote. Silence immediately fell over the crowd. Everyone slowly pivoted their heads toward Calvin until he snapped out of his altered state. He did not speak another word the rest of the party. Frank has carried this traumatic memory with him each day for over 40 years. He's in his 60s now. His life has slowed down. He's no longer the same reckless teenager trading hard drugs with his buddies at a party. But one piece of him will never fully let go of those years. He thinks of Christine and Debbie often. He told John that he grew up in a time where people didn't go to the police, especially the rougher crowd that he hung out with. He did not want to give them a reason to keep a closer eye on all of them. But more than that, he had no tangible physical proof of what Calvin did. He had a story at best, and one where he and Calvin were both under the influence of heavy and illegal substances. More than that, if he went to the police and told them the story, would the repercussions be fatal for him? Would Calvin, a large man at six foot four who was built like a tank, silence Frank with his fists? Frank did go to the police shortly after he finished speaking with John. 
He even shared with them everything he knew, even the parts that did not paint him in the most flattering light. John reiterated to us, though, that all these years, decades even later, it was clear that part of Frank still feared Calvin. Frank recounted this one memory where Calvin chased him down the road with a live chainsaw. Frank was only able to fend Calvin off after grabbing a baseball bat from a neighboring lawn to protect himself. Calvin knew back then, and he probably knows still today, that he held a certain power over those who crossed paths with him. He could intimidate people into not talking without even verbalizing a true threat. Although Christine was killed the night before, her body was not found until the next afternoon. A North Middlesex teenager was driving along the road that morning, granted, hours before her deceased body was discovered in the woods, when he noticed Calvin flagging him down from the side of the road. He pulled over to stop, and although reluctant, he agreed to let Calvin hitch a ride with him. As he was driving, Calvin would say things here and there, attempting to start a conversation. In the short drive through town, one might have expected Calvin to bring up the weather, or perhaps school events. But with his eyes staring out at the road ahead of them, Calvin muttered, Pretty sad what happened to Christine, huh? The driver had no idea what Calvin was referring to. But hours later, after her death was made public, he was flabbergasted by the way Calvin had spoken so nonchalant and unbothered. How would he have known what had happened to Christine that early if he had not at least been present when she died? Calvin was known to hang out with another local boy named Victor Koch. Victor is now deceased, but the day after Christine's body was found, Victor's rumored girlfriend at the time immediately moved away. It's believed to have been to a completely different state. Did she flee because they had been involved or because she knew something? We may never know why Christine was senselessly killed. We've often pulled up her photograph, the only one we ever found, when we talk about her case. In it, she appears to be a thin girl with shoulder-length hair and large rimmed glasses. Her sweet, almost innocent look harshly contrasts with the brutal, inhumane way that she died. Did something get out of hand that night at a party, and Calvin and his friends maybe took it too far? He seemed to like to do that. Did she know something and threaten to expose him so he silenced her in the most depraved way? We think of Christine every day, especially considering that her case seems to be buried from the town's histories. We share with you all these detailed stories and interview notes with the hope that it will reach someone who was there that night someone who could provide further information to authorities about what had happened to Christine. It's not too late to give her the peace and justice she and her family deserve. In season two, we shared the stories of two women, Eddie Segal and Brenda Lacombe. Eddie was last seen in Nashua, but her car was found abandoned in Hollis, New Hampshire. She disappeared only weeks after Debbie Quimby. Though her body was never located, Eddie has been declared legally dead. Brenda, a young, vivacious mother from Lowell, 
was found 20 to 30 minutes away from her home. Her deceased, nude body was discovered in Harvard, Massachusetts, a stone's throw from Pepperland Townsend. The cases of these two women stuck out to us because of what we had learned about Calvin. Calvin grew up part of a prominent family in the area, one who owns a local business. Eddie, though older than Calvin, was a petite, youthful-looking woman. We cannot let go of the idea that Eddie and Calvin potentially knew each other. Eddie was an attractive woman who was known to have a good time. Did she meet Calvin at a party one night? There are two main reasons we have toyed with this theory. First of all, Eddie and Debbie fit almost an identical profile, all the way down to the physical description, height, and weight. Two, Eddie's abandoned car was found less than a mile from one of the offices tied to Calvin's family's local business. We cannot ignore the notion that these petite young females with eerily similar features both vanished into thin air, merely months apart. We were grateful to connect with Brenda's family about her case as well, and could not shake the possibility that Calvin may have played a part in her death. Brenda's family shared with us that while Brenda was a young, single mother, she still had a thrill-seeking side to her, and she enjoyed nights out partying sometimes. We know Calvin was no stranger to the party scene. Was she unfortunate to have crossed paths with Calvin too? We cannot dismiss the idea that this could have happened. Her body was found over 20 miles away from where she lived, in a wooded area near a stone wall. Both the way her body was disposed and the close proximity of the dumping ground to Calvin's neck of the woods can't help but remind us of Christine. Did Brenda go out at night to meet Calvin and a heated interaction unleashed his psychotic temper? Given the secondhand confessions of his involvement in the deaths of Debbie and Christine, it is not implausible that he was committing murder in 1982 as well. You may be listening with skepticism, and while of course, as rookie journalists ourselves, we encourage questioning every detail, I think it is important to share some notes on what has been concretely established to be true about Calvin. Calvin is no stranger to law enforcement. From his early teenage years up until present day, Calvin has collected a wide range of mugshots. He is a registered level 3 sex offender. Nearly 20 years ago, he was charged with assaulting his elderly parents and holding them hostage in an attempt to extort them for money. This was the third time he had been convicted of assaulting his parents. He was first convicted of rape the same year Brenda was found murdered. Calvin is a dangerous man, one without any semblance of a moral compass, who has repeatedly committed the same crimes. We were able to interview a man who was in prison with Calvin. He recounted vividly the moment Calvin alluded to taking the lives of multiple innocent people. Basically, I mean, I've known him since I was a kid. Like, your parents always kind of said, like, you know, don't like, really hang out with him or whatever because, you know, he's bad news or whatever. And so when I moved towards, like, downtown Pepperell out of the woods, I got a job at a pizza place. And he would come in, like, first of all, he's enormous. You know, he's just a big guy. Yeah. And, and he uh, would come in every Friday 
at like 2.30, order a large pepperoni pizza, and he'd sit there and wait for like all the schools to get out and sit in there and eat for like an hour and a half. And I remember the lady that like ran the place who was so creeped out and she's like, all he, and you could just see him, he would like eat the whole pizza, but he's staring off at like all the kids that keep coming into like the parking lot and stuff, <clears throat> like the entire time. And it was really creepy. But I haven't ever thought much about it, you know, because I knew him, like, he was always nice to me and stuff, but, um, so I had always known him, I never really gave it too much consideration, I always knew he was a creep, but when I got into, uh, when I went to Old Colony Prison in Bridgewater, and when I got there, he was there, and he's like, oh, you know, because we're both from Pepperl or whatever, you know, he starts coming over and talking to me, and, um, like, it was so weird because... All of a sudden, like, in AA or whatever, like, they would have AA classes, and everybody just pretty much went to get, like, the two-and-a-half-day good time they give you. So, but it was, like, it was just pretty much me, him, and another guy from Pepper in this one. And, uh, like, sometimes, like, he would share or whatever, and then he'd be like, you know, I've done so many things in my life, like, that are just horrible, and drinking caused it all. And I should be doing, like, ten life sentences, he would say. You know, saying things like this all the time. Oh. And he's not, it's not like he's a drug trafficker. I mean, what else could he be getting all these big life sentences for? You know, it's like pretty much common sense. We focus the majority of our research efforts on seeking information regarding the potential involvement of those local to the impacted communities at the time. It would be irresponsible for us to conclude this show and not mention that Lewis Lent was a janitor that confessed to at least three murders between the years 1983 and 1994 should not at least be considered as well. Lewis would have been 27 when Debbie Quimby disappeared, though he did admit to driving through Townsend in the late 1970s as he searched for potential and then eventual victims. He was also known for instigating law enforcement, trying to send them down the wrong path. Is it possible that he could have known Eddie, Brenda, Christine, or Debbie? Absolutely, though without further evidence or direction to the investigation surrounding his potential involvement, it is difficult to provide a more sufficient theory of what could have happened. In the second episode of season one, we shared the stories of Joanne Muldoon and Deborah Johnson, Two women brutally stabbed to death shortly after Judith Buig was found murdered only miles away. Given Herbert LeBlanc's involvement in the brutal stabbing of Donna Moe and suspected involvement in Joanne and Deborah's death, could he have also been responsible for Judy Buig's murder? Judy taught art classes on the weekends. Did he run into her in Fitchburg one day and select her as a future target? We may never know the answer. But given the violent, intimate way all three women were murdered, deep, repeated stab wounds, is it really plausible another killer like this could have been acting at the same time? We sat down with Joe one final time to discuss what truly constitutes a serial killer and what the probability is that one, if not more than two, could have been acting in the same small communities during overlapping timelines. Well... I did the maths on this recently. I um, I got a maths teacher friend of mine, and I said, "Look, 
let's sit down and work this out and see if we can um, come to some kind of numerical figure about how this might happen. Now, first of all, oh man, you, first it's like where do you start? Because I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. So all these murders happened in the span of across how many years? Like 10 years. 10-year period. Yeah. So odds of two serial murderers meeting each other at any point in their lives is about 0.6%. And to me, that seems quite a high number because, you know, 0.6%, 1% basically, if you round it up, you do you roll a 100-sided die, eventually you're going to get a 1 pretty soon. And, but that's not quite the case because it's the, it's the probability of any two serial killers meeting each other at any one point. So it's not like the chances of one serial killer meeting another, like each one. It's the chances of any two of them meeting each other at all. So when you take that into consideration, it's quite a low number. So 0.6%. And if you assume that there's like round up to 400 serial killers in America, so that's like the average. Uh, could be a lot more, could be a lot less. We don't really know how many there are. But if you consider it to be about 350, we round up to 400 to make it easier. About 0.6% of any two serial kills me. Wow. So, and you're factoring the, <laughs> like, the moving and the travel and the logistics of the whole thing happening. And, the, and when you do, that's when it's 0.6%. And even then, you've got to add in <laughs> another two serial killers on top of that inside a very small radius of 10 miles. So, to put it in perspective, because the number had so many zeros, it isn't worth saying the number out loud. But to put it in perspective, it's like someone winning the lottery every week, eight weeks in a row, <laughs> to have four serial killers operating in the same area of a 10-mile radius over the span of, if we say 10 years, could be more, could be less. So it's like someone winning the lottery eight times every week in a row, <laughs> which, you know, it's astronomically small, and it's so small that it would probably never happen at some point anywhere in human history. Another analogy is when you um, shuffle a deck of cards, random order, every, you could shuffle a deck of cards every second from the day you're born to the day you die, and you'd never have the same order twice. To get four serial killers in one area across 10 miles, it's like getting the same order of cards twice in one day, which, again, astronomically small and completely unheard of. What are the odds there could have been four active serial killers in a 10-mile radius? The simple answer is astronomically small. While the majority of people in these small-town communities pray for these unsolved mysteries to receive closure, we would be remiss if we did not share with you the story of a different kind of local, well, bad apple. A man who saw a community suffering and decided to take advantage of the residents' desires for answers. Robert Reinhardt first approached towns and authorities and local residents in 2009, offering to assist in solving the case of Debbie Quimby's disappearance. Though at the time, Debbie's mother relayed to him that she did not have the funds to support his services, a private investigation team, he assured her he would seek donations from the town instead. Police Chief Irving Marshall was so impressed by Rob's enthusiasm to assist in his working knowledge of the case already. Shortly after, it was publicized that Robert would be running a, a funded private investigation 
stories began to leak that he was a fraud. Less than five years later, in the fall of 2014, Robert Reinhardt was charged with conning investors and local residents in an array of schemes. The Lowell Sun, a local newspaper, wrote, quote, In 2009, Townsend residents were solicited to donate to Missing Persons Special Investigation Unit, a private for-profit business started by Reinhardt. This company sought to take on cold cases for a fee. End quote. This campaign proved to be entirely a fraud. Robert Reinhardt was not only a con man, he heartlessly took advantage of the little remaining hope left in a community still devastated by the 1977 disappearance. While we encourage everyone to share any tidbit they may know about the unsolved murders of these women, we must all be diligent in our quest for answers. We are only inches away from justice. Can you listening help bring these towns even closer? <laughs>